This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. It's great to have Rabbi Landau with us, representing Awesome Acts of Oi. So Rabbi Landau is going to say some brief words of introduction, and then I'll say some brief words of introduction, and then Rabbi Gladstein will take us away. So Rabbi Landau, off you go. Thank you very much, Rabbi Sachstein, for this privilege. The Leshem was a great Lithuanian capitalist, mysticist, and he tells us that the Purim miracle opened the doorway to an unbelievable resurgence of power in the world that occupied our history throughout the Second Temple time, of which we are beneficiaries today. It is a great privilege for me to be part of this holy gathering to invite Rabbi Daniel Glatsky to be able to address us, who has wowed us with his unbelievable depth and knowledge and a clarity of giving hope. Without further ado, Rabbi Glatsky. Let me just make a quick mention. Thank you, Rabbi Landa. It's so wonderful to share the special Torah Tuesdays with you and with all of our um, uh, our attendees that are with us and of course a very big thank you to uh, Johnny Rogoff for arranging Rabbi Gladstein and for sponsoring the show this evening we're very grateful to him and to his wife to giving our South African Jews an opportunity to hear Torah on the calib- of the caliber of Rabbi Gladstein he's speaking tonight is there something holier than Torah the exalted realm of Megillah's Esther um, thank you Rabbi Gladstein we always are very excited to hear from you and your deep and powerful Torah goes a long way and even reaches the depths of Africa over here. And also a very big thank you to um, Rabbi Akiva and Edisheva Gilbert for hosting the webinar. Rabbi Gilbert will say the thank yous at the end. Rabbi Gladstein, over to you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Saxton, for the uh, very warm introduction, as well as to Rabbi Landau for his kind words. Um... I always uh, am very honored and touched when I have the opportunity to speak for the South African community, not only because I receive more introductions than uh, when I speak for any other community, but because of the very warm uh, greetings and welcome that I receive. And um, I already established a minog. You know, not every minog is good minhag. You know, Rav Avadya writes that the word minhag could be rearranged to spell other words, but nevertheless, a Jewish custom is a Jewish custom. And um, again, I want to thank Rabbi Gilbert as well for, um, for uh, hosting this panel and all the Rabbanim who are present. But i like to uh, always acknowledge my dear friends in uh, Joburg. First, I thank uh, Rabbi Yonatan Rogoff for arranging tonight's event. Um, as well as, uh, I, I like to thank Rabbi Lan Rabinowitz and Rabbi Neil Appel, or my, my very good friends, and uh, to all of my chaverim and yedidim, thank you so much for hosting me uh, and giving me this uh, very wonderful opportunity. So I want to share with you an idea that's been ruminating in uh, my subconscious for a couple of years. It's based on a number of ideas that I have shared in the past, but I have never expressed it uh, in this fashion, And uh, Johnny asked me uh, to speak about a specific aspect of Megillah's Esther, and that sort of triggered an idea, and I'm presenting for the very first time today, and with the help of uh, Siata Deshmaya, with the help of God, uh, we hope that it is presented and received favorably. We are now approaching, we're in arms breath of the Yomtif of Purim Haba'alein Ulatayva. We're within 30 days of the Yomtif of Purim. And of course we know that the day before Purim is known as Tainas Esther, the fast of Esther. And many, perhaps erroneously, assume that why do we fast on Tainas Esther? To commemorate the fasting that Esther did in the times of Purim before she went into Achashverosh. However, there's very little basis that that is indeed the reason why we fast in uh, prior to Purim. In fact, the most well-known and the most established and documented reason is brought by the Rush, quoting Rabbi Tam. The Gemara says in Masechta Megillah, the Gemara 
um, citing the Mishnah. The Mishnah makes a very interesting statement that there are many possible days that we could read the Megillah. The 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th. Five possible days to read the Megillah. And the Gemara learns it out from various psukim. And there's one day the Gemara says we don't need a pasuk to teach that you're allowed to read the Megillah on that day. And that is the 13th of Adar. The 13th of Adar, we do not need a pasuk to teach that we're allowed to read the Megillah. The Gemara says, Yud Gimel Adar, Zaman Kehila Lachalhi. The 13th of Adar is a time of gathering for everyone. Says the Rush. What does that mean? The 13th of Adar is a time of gathering. The Rush quotes Rabbeinu Tam that the 13th of Adar was the day that we were given license to kill our enemies. And therefore, although there is no documented record of this, the following historical fact, we can assume that this is indeed the case. And that is, there is an old-standing Jewish tradition that whenever Jews go to war, we do the most counterintuitive thing. The last thing you would think should be done before you go to war is fast. <laughs> the one thing a soldier has to be is well-fueled. However, Jewish tradition is, before we go to war, we fast. We sit betainus. We do tshuva. That occurred when Klaus went out to war against Amalek, the war that is recorded at the end of Parshas B'Shalach, and that is Jewish tradition. Whenever we go out to war, we are Yoishev Batainis, we sit in fasting. Now says the Rush, even though there's no documented evidence that indeed the Jewish people fasted in the times of Purim, but they, they obviously fasted, that's what we do. And therefore, to commemorate the tainus of the Jewish people before they went to wage war against Amalek in the times of Purim, we fast every Erev Purim. That is the official reason for Tainus Esther. It's brought by the Rush in the name of Rabbi Tam. The Ran quotes it, and it's mentioned by a whole slew of Rishonim. That this is the authentic reason for Tainus Esther. However, I think we are entitled and we're authorized to dig a little bit deeper and try to understand, is there perhaps more to Tainas Esther than just commemorating a fast which we have no record of and is only presumed because there have been many wars that the Jewish people have waged throughout history. In the times of Hanukkah, we went to war and presumably we also fasted before the war and yet there is no commemoration of that particular Tainus. So per- perhaps there is more to Tainus Esther than meets the eye. Now the Talmud teaches us that Megillah Esther was written with the Divine Spirit and it is therefore nitainly darish. We are authorized to question every phrase, every letter, every cantillation mark, every nuance and detail of the Megillah. We are authorized and we are given license to apply ourselves and try to understand every detail of the Megillah. And if you study the Megillah carefully, we will notice there are a number of anomalies in the Megillah. Something like large letters, large letters in the Megillah. For instance, um, I'm sorry, I, I, I dearly apologize, but I am a Balkoire, and when it comes to the Megillah, I cannot help myself. But when I say the Psukim, I like to lane it, so, so you're going to have to tolerate that. We have the Pasuk, This is describing the tapestries in the Suda of Achashverosh, and the word Chur, the Ches is a large letter. Now going to the end of the Megillah, we have the words Vatichtoiv Esther Hamalko and Paraktes Pasik Chavtes. And by the way, if any of you have a Megillah Esther uh, handy, uh, it might be worthwhile to to be able to reference it. Um, so we have these two large letters in the Megillah. Toward the beginning, in Parak Aleph, Pasuk Vav, a big ches. Toward the end, Parak Tes, Pasuk Chav Tes, a big tuf. What is the significance of these large letters? And interestingly, the Roy Keach, one of the Rishonim, one of the masters of the secrets of the Torah, he says, well, the ches, which uh, corresponds to the number eight, represents the fact that Achashverosh wore the eight garments of the high priest, and the big tuff at the end of the Megillah, Vatichtoiv Esther, indicates that Esther wrote a big writing, an eternal writing, a writing Ladoirais. Okay, 
But let's come back to these large letters. There is a very mysterious medrash. By a show of hands, okay, now I'm going to have to take your word for it because I don't really see I just see the rabbis, the good rabbis over here. How many of you have snakes in your house? Just by a show of hands, how many of you currently have snakes? Great! I see about 85 people raising their hands, and since I can't see you, I'm just assuming you're raising your hands that you have, you're dealing with snakes. So it's a good thing that you came to the shir tonight, because the Medrash says that if you've got snakes in your house, what you do is, don't call an exterminator. Listen to Torah Tuesdays, and hope that one rabbi will tell you this Medrash. The Medrash says you take the horn of a ram, and you blow smoke through it, and the snakes... Uh, disappear. Uh, by the way, I tell you from personal experience, it works every time. It's, it's, uh, it doesn't even cost uh, too much money. Now the question is, what in the world is this matters talking about? Who has snakes in their house? And who's actually going to blow smoke through a ram's horn and try this at home? So the Benish Chai, Chacham Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, he teaches us that this medrash contains one of the secrets of the Torah, one of the secrets of the meaning of the Yom Tif of Purim, and how we should perceive the miracles that God brought for us in the times of Esther. And that is, the Gemara says in Masechta Yuma, the last miracle that is recorded is the miracle of Purim. Esther is Soif Kol Hanisim. Esther is the last of the miracles. Question being, no it's not. There were many miracles after the Purim story. Hanukkah happened after the Purim story. What does the Gemara mean? Esther is the end of all the miracles. And maybe similar to the idea that uh, Rav Landau quoted from the Leshem, there is an idea that through the miracle of Purim, Hashem was able, through the great lights and through the great Nisim that occurred in the times of Purim, that contributes to the ultimate redemption, to the final miracles that will take place before the redemption of the Jewish people. However, says the Ben Chai, we likewise have a problem. We have snakes. Because, says the Ben Chai, the same way Haman was a thorn in our side, Haman represents the eternal tragedies and problems and stumbling blocks that the Jewish people encounter throughout the ages. Says the Ben Chai, through the annual reading of the Megillah, that helps us conquer and overcome and destroy the annual threats of the yearly Haman. And through our reading of the Megillah, which is likened to the horn of the Ayala, Ayala is a reference to Esther. By reading the Megillah every year, we're able to vanquish the annual threat of Haman. Now from these words of the Ben Chai, this sort of uncovers for us an entirely revolutionary perspective of the Megillah. Because what we have to understand is, we traditionally, we, we typically think that uh, about 2,000 years ago, there was a bad man, a bad dude named Haman, and he made a decree, he wanted to kill us. And God saved us! And great! Shalom al Yisrael! And every year we come to the shuls and we take our groggers and we say, great, we're so happy for that miracle that happened 2,000 years ago. And every time we hear Haman's name, we bang. And we think we're just commemorating an isolated event that happened 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. But the Benesh is revealing to us that the Purim story is a living story. The story is alive, the story, the story is recurring. That the miracle of Purim is a recurring miracle. It's a miracle that we keep on having to tap into again and again. And we have to read it again and again because the threat of Haman is a living threat. It's an annual threat. It's a recurring threat, and we have to chisel away at that threat until we've gone through the Yom Tif of Purim enough times that we've completely vanquished Haman. A number of years ago, I came across a tshuva, a halachic responsa, written by Rav Shammai Kahas Gross. 
uh, what a contemporary um, posek. And he's discussing the status of Tainas Esther. Many of you perhaps know that in the totem pole of fasting, Tainas Esther is not the most stringent of all the fast days. Certainly it's not like Yom Kippur, it's not like Tisha B'Av, and in a sense it's not even like the Dalet Hanesim, it's not even like Asara B'Teves, it's not even like Shiva Asabatamos. But Rav Shammai Kohas Gross says that's in a halachic sense, but in a mystical sense, in a Kabbalistic sense. There is something very stringent about Tainas Esther. And that is, he says, and now he doesn't say where he's getting this from, and this is what really uh, challenged me. He says the Mikubalim teach us that not only is the Purim miracle an annual miracle, something that we could tap into throughout the ages, but the thread of Haman could not be completely abolished. There is a concept that Haman's threat continued to loom over the heads of the Jewish people. And actually, it came out and devolved and took effect in the year 1648-1649. Tachvatat the Chalmanitsky pogroms. That is why, says Reb Shammai Kahas Gross, if you look in Megillas Esther, there's a big ches in the beginning of the Megillah, there's a big tough in the, in the, in the end of the Megillah, indicating the precise date that Haman's decree came to fruition. Haman's decree came out into the world in the year 1648-1649. And there is an idea that that thread is always looming, annually, yearly, and it really came out in the year 1648-1649. And that's why it is so critical to fast on Tainus Esther because we don't know exactly how much of that thread is still looming over our, our heads. And it is so vital that those who are physically able, certainly if anyone is uh, of compromised health, they should discuss it with their, with their um, rabbi and their posek. But in an ideal sense, that is the importance of fasting on Tainus Esther. So this really got uh, challenged me. Who exactly are these Mikhubalim who write that the threat of Haman is an annual yearly threat? Where is this documented? Where is this found? And the first uh, couple of years after I heard this idea, I wanted to discuss it, I wanted to share it, I just felt there was not enough evidence and this was not documented enough for me be, to be able to share this with uh, an audience. And then a couple of years ago, the floodgates of heaven opened and I found that in fact this idea has such early sources that the decree of Haman is an annual decree, is a yearly decree and much of the information I'm going to share with you now perhaps many of you are aware of or have heard many times. I'd like to share it in a new light and then bring in a revolutionary perspective of the Megillah in general. The Yismach Moshe, Rav Moshe Teitelbaum, who's actually the progenitor of uh, what is today known as uh, the Hasidus of Satmar, he wrote a Kabbalistic commentary on Megillas Esther, where he brings this idea that if you look in Josephus, there's actually a small compendium printed in the back of Josephus called Sheirus Yehuda, where it is brought that the Jewish people have a tradition that the decree of Haman came to fruition, emerged, came to the light of day in the year 1648-1649. Now, amazingly, traditionally, there's actually a fast day that has been established. It's not a fast day that is uh, well known or is well observed, but there is a fast day that some still observe today to commemorate the Chalmanitsky pogroms, and that fast day is Chaf Sivan, the 20th day of Sivan. Now, says the Yismach Moshe, Chaf Sivan, even that day is alluded to in the Pasuk. When God raises His hand, and He swears that His name is incomplete, and His throne is incomplete, until Amalek is destroyed, the Pasuk says, Kiyad al-Kais 
Ka, case, Chaf, Samach. Chaf, Samach stands for Chaf, Sivan. That is a remez, that is an allusion to this idea. That the decree of Amalek and the decree of Haman did not come out into the world until it emerged in the guise of the Chelmenitsky pogroms, which are commemorated on case the 20th day of Sivan. And then it sort of, uh, the gates of heaven opened, and if you do a little research, you will find that this concept, this idea, that the decree of Haman is looming in every generation and came to fruition in the year Tav Ches. By the way, the year Tav Ches, Tav is 400, Ches is 8. That's the year 408. Now that's 408 of the Hebrew calendar. The way you, this is just a good idea, it's a good piece of knowledge to have. The way you convert a Hebrew date into a secular date, you add the year 1240. So the year 408 is 1648 in the uh, secular calendar. But this idea is brought by Rav Shamshin Meashtrapoli, who actually was one of the great Mikubalim, who lived through the era and was murdered in 1648-1649, that he uncovered and he revealed that in fact, the big letters in the Megillah, the Tuf and the Ches, are an allusion to 1648-1649. And then a friend of mine showed me that in the Halachos Ketanos of one of the Kadmonim, one of the earliest authorities, one of the Rishonim, he says something out of this world. We know that one of the unique phenomenon of the Megillah is God's name does not appear in the Megillah. Lo and behold, you look throughout all the Psukim of the Megillah, God's name is missing. Where is the name of Hashem? Says the Halachas Ketanus, where is the name of God? Well, since the Megillah records the threat of Haman, and this was a threat endorsed by God, God allowed it to happen. And we have a principle, Ki kisav asher nichtav b'shem hamelech, any writing which is written in the name of the king. And we know there's a tradition that whenever it says the word melech in the Megillah, it's referring to the king of all kings, God Almighty. If God allowed Haman to write this decree, if it would say God's name in the Megillah, it would be like God stamping His name on Haman's decree, and then Haman would have to be successful in somehow, whether then or throughout history, allowing the decree to come to fruition. So God did not want to put His name in the Megillah, because the Megillah is a very dangerous document. Because since Haman's decree is recorded in the Tanakh, if God's name would be there, it would be as if He's giving His stamp of approval on Haman's decree. So God said, take my name out of it. You know, similar to when Yaakov Avinu says, I don't want my name mentioned in the, in the uh, context of the story of Korach or in the story of Shimon and Levi. So God says, do not put my name on this. So this is a very frightening idea. That although Purim itself is in a way the greatest day of the year, Purim is the day of the greatest salvation of the year. Purim is also the most frightening day of the year. Because what comes along with Purim, what comes along with the annual salvation of Purim, is the annual threat of Haman, which successfully we're able to abolish through our tshuva and fasting on Tainas Esther. And now I would like to share with you a segment of the Megillah, that many are familiar with, but I think in the light of, in light of what we just learned, this takes on a new form. We know that towards the end of the Megillah, we have the list of the ten sons of Haman. And in the ten sons of Haman, there are a number of anomalies there. And if you have a Megillah in front of you, that would be wonderful. Otherwise, I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. In Perak Tes, Pasuk Hey through Yud, we have the... Uh, we have the ten sons of Haman, and uh, famously, and, uh, and probably most of you are familiar, that in the record of the ten sons of Haman, there are three anomalies, there are three small 
letters. What are the three small letters in the ten sons of Haman? In the name Parshandosa, we have a, sh- a small tuf. In the name Parmashta, we have a small shin. And in the name Vaizasa, we have a small zayin. Tuf, shin, zayin. Furthermore, we have a large letter. We have the letter Vav. A Vaizasa is a large Vav. But let's ask ourselves a number of questions, and the truth is that this, what I'm about to say, is recorded in many Svarim and many historical works, but it was discovered by the master of what is called Diluge Oisios, the skipping of letters of the Torah by none other than Rav Michael Ber Weismandel, the Rashiva of Nitra and one of the great heroes um, who rescued tens of thousands of Jews from the Nazis. Now, he asks two very important questions. Haman takes this uh, misstep with Esther. Achishverosh comes back into the palace. He sees Haman is laying on the bed. He says, Haman, what are you crazy? What are you doing? And Chavonah says, why don't we hang the guy? And uh, Achishverosh says, great idea. And Haman's hanging. And then Achishverosh turns to Esther. He says, honey dear, whatever you want. American Express, Platinum, here's my credit card. You ask me whatever you want. Yes, until now I said you can't rebuild a temple. Now, all bets are off. You could ask for anything. Ask for your heart's desire. And Esther makes the two most bizarre requests you'll ever come across. Because the Megillah records that the Jews in Shushan killed 500 Amalekim. And they killed the ten sons of Haman. And Achishverosh says, Dear, what would you like to ask for? And Esther says, Hmm, should I ask to rebuild the temple? Should I ask? I have a great idea. She says to Achishverosh, You see these ten corpses lying on the ground, being eaten by, I don't know, vultures and rats? I would like to hang them tomorrow. Friends, this is literally the most bizarre request anyone could possibly make. Firstly, Achashverosh just gave Esther a blank check. There's so many things Esther can ask for on behalf of the Jewish people. Why would she ask to hang ten corpses? And furthermore, they're dead already. Of what benefit would it be to hang these guys? But as is well known, and I never like to say things uh, from anecdotal evidence, but this is not anecdotal evidence. We have a very strong tradition that Germany is Amalek. Say, where does this come from? In the official biography of Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnenfeld, it's brought that when uh, the Kaiser, the German Kaiser, came to Jerusalem and everyone came out to greet him and to be able to make a bracha, Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld and another tzaddik would not want to look at this individual because they said it is our tradition from Rabbi Yeshua Leib Diskin from the Vilna Gain that Germany is Amalek and someone who we have to eradicate we're not really interested at looking at. But even more authentic than a story is if you look in the Gemara Megillah on Davav. And I'm saying this over, even though I'm sure many of you have heard this before, because I want you to hear this in the context of what we're learning. The Gemara Megillah says that Yaakov Avinu says to God, God Almighty, do not give Esav Harasha, do not give Esau his heart's desire, do not unleash his muzzle, Says the Gemara, what is this weapon of Esau that could go out and destroy the world? Says the Gemara, the weapon of Esau is Germania. Now listen carefully, it does not say Germany. Don't make a mistake, it doesn't say Germany in the Gemara. The Gemara says Germania. And don't think, oh, it says Germania close enough. No, we, don't, we don't work that way. The Gemara says, if not for Germania, Esau would go and destroy the world. The Gemara then continues. There are 300, and 300 officers in Germania and 365 chieftains in Rome. And every day that one goes out toward the other and they kill each other. 
What is this Gemara teaching us? This Gemara is teaching us that Esav, Edom, has the capacity to destroy the world. That is through the agent of Germamia. Now, what is Germamia? Says Rav Yaakov Emden in his comments on the Gemara, Germamia is Germania, Germany, what we know as Ashkenaz. So that's the first thing you need to know. We're not just guessing and theorizing Germamia is Germany. This is what Rav Yaakov Emden writes. Furthermore, the Gra in Masech Yuman Daf Yud changes the text, meaning he says don't spell it Germamia, spell it Gimel, Reish, Mem, Nun, Yud, Aleph. Spell it Germania, Germany. So there we have it. The Gemara is openly saying that there is a nation that falls under the umbrella category of Edom that has the capacity to destroy the world. And which nation is that? Germany. And what, has, what prevents Germany from destroying the world? The Gemara says there are two impediments in Germany's quest to destroy the world. Number one, they are ununified. They are some patchwork of 300 republics. And number two, they can't get along with Rome. So Rome is always fighting with Germany. So lest you think that this is some kind of agadita, hyperbole, and we shouldn't take this literally, it is well known that William Schreier writes that in the 19th century, Germany was some crazy patchwork of 300 republics. In fact, I read to you from the rise and fall of the Third Reich. By the end of the Middle Ages, which had seen Britain and France emerge as unified nations, Germany remained a crazy patchwork of some 300 individual states. But you know that already. 1871, Germany begins to unite. And the world is looking at them. Wow, they were unimportant for so many hundreds and thousands of years, and all of a sudden they're uniting. And comes World War I. And Germany attacks. And where is Rome during World War I? Rome begins the war neutral. In the end of the war, they are against Germany. Germany loses. Germany ultimately wins the war, but does not uh, galvanize its power. Now Hitler rises to power. What does Hitler do? He begins to unite all of the far-flung republics of Germany. And his officers are saying, his advisors are saying, why are you doing this? What do you need this for? But it's as if Hitler understands that the only way for him to reign supreme is to unite all the Germanic republics. And then Hitler does one of the strangest things in history. He forges an alliance with Italy. Now everybody knows historically that the Italians are the worst fighters in the world. Italians are good at making pizza, but you don't want them in your army. And the one treaty that Hitler did not break was his treaty with Rome. And they tell Hitler, you have a treaty with Poland. Hitler says, I don't care. You have a treaty with Russia. I don't care. He breaks every treaty he ever made, but not with Rome. It's as if somehow Hitler understands that if he's going to rise to power, he needs to do two things. He needs to unite all of the republics and he needs to make an alliance with Italy. But then the war is over. And instinctively, the world realizes that to keep Germany at bay, we need to split them up to East Germany and West Germany. And everybody knows that when the war was over, in the year Tavshin Vav, 1946, the world community created a war tribunal where they tried 11 Nazi criminals in Nuremberg because that was the hotbed, that was the seat of, of Hitler's activity. And 11 Nazis stood on trial. And of course, they were going to be found guilty, but the French judge had Rachmanus, those French and, they, and he said, you know what? They should be executed by the firing squad. That is a more noble death. And the, the German uh, criminals, the SS, 
these 11 Rishayim, they embraced dying by the firing squad. But ultimately the decision was they were going to be hanged. And amazingly, when these Germans heard that they were going to be hanged, their reaction was, that's such a despicable death, where that's so beneath us, that's not fitting for the, the prestige that we have. They did not want to be hanged. They were gripped with terror when they heard that that was going to be their fate. Dear friends, the word machar in the Torah could sometimes mean tomorrow. Sometimes it can mean far off future. Esther turns to the king. The king in the Megillah could also refer to God Almighty. And she says, God Almighty, yes, you saved us. But we're going to go through a dark and bitter gullus. Could you please show us a bright light, a bright salvation? Yinosin gam machar. Tomorrow, in 2,000 years from now, please allow your children to hang their ten enemies. And... What's amazing is if you look at the ten sons of Haman, the ace parshandas, the ace talfan, the ace aspasa. We know the word ace or s is ba larabais includes. That's a principle in exegesis. Whenever we have the word s, s comes to include. So who else was hanged besides parshandas? Who else was hanged besides talfan? Besides aspasa, the answer is who else was hanged? These ten: Johann Ribbentrop, Ernest. Kettenbrunner, Julius Streicher, Alfred Rosenberg. They were hung. They were hanged besides the Aseris B'nai Haman. So you'll say, this is not exactly precise because didn't you say there were 11 Nazis that were tried in the Nuremberg trials? Well, what's amazing is that even though there were 11, one of them committed suicide. One of them killed themselves. So you say, okay, but it's not exactly parallel because even though ultimately 10 were hanged, but the 11th that committed suicide, you know, who does he correspond to? And as we know, the Medrash says, Haman had a daughter who when she saw, when she saw what she thought was her father leading, uh, being led on a horse uh, by Mordechai, so she dumped the trash on her, what she thought was uh, Mordechai's head and then she looks down and she sees her father looking up and she realizes, uh-oh, I made a big mistake, I blew it over here. And she jumped off the roof and she committed suicide. So we have ten Nazi criminals corresponding to the ten sons of Haman. And one Nazi who committed suicide, goring, corresponding to the daughter of Haman. Yeah, you'll say, but goring, he was a man, wasn't he? Well, this is not for uh, public consumption, but let's just say Goring was a uh, genuine deviant. Let's just put it that way. So in fact, he did correspond pretty nicely to the daughter of Haman. In fact, if you look in the Sefer, Oitzer Hayedi Oitzer of Michal Stern, Rabbi Chil Michal Stern, he says if you take the Gematria, of Parshandosa, Dalfoy, Nasposa, Peirosa, Adalia, Ridosa, Parmashta, Arisai, Erik Haman, 7.46, is the precise numerical value of Ribbentrop, Kettenbrunner, Streicher, Rosenberg, Keitel, Yodel, Hans Frank, and all of these ten Nazis. Try it at home. Esther is asking the Rebani Shalaylam, could you show us your face? Could you show us a clear demonstration of your hand in history? Because Esther understood that the Purim story is a living story. Don't make a mistake in thinking that Megillus Esther is an ancient document that records past history. No. And this is the novelty that I want to bring out. This Purim story is literally a document that records all future events with dates given. Because while this uh, war tribunal took place in the year 1946, Tavshin Vav, the church pled for amnesty and they delayed the court case and the hanging until the following Hebrew year, the year Tavshin Zion. And on Hoshana Rabbah, Tavshin Zion, 
These ten Nazis were publicly hanged. And as I'm sure many of you know, when Julius Streicher was taken out to be hanged, he said such a mysterious statement. He said, Purim Fest, 1946. So you'll say, okay, it's a coincidence. Ten Nazis, ten sons of Haman, the daughter of Haman, goring. These kind of things happen. So Esther says, God Almighty, don't let anybody, don't allow anyone to brush this aside. Please place the precise date of this occurrence straight in the Megillah story. And therefore, if you look in the Ten Sons of Havan, you have a small tuff, you have a small shin, and you have a small zayin. The year 1947, tuff so you'll say, come on, Tavshin Zion occurs six times in our history. It occurred in the year Tavshin Zion, and in the year Aleph Tavshin Zion, and Bez Tavshin Zion, and Gimel Tavshin Zion. Tavshin Zion just means 707. So in the Jewish calendar, you have the year 707, 1707-2707, 3707-4707, 5707-5707. So Esther says, God Almighty, don't let anybody brush this aside. You take that vav, and you make it a big vav, indicating that it, this will take place the sixth time in our history that the year 707 takes place. What occurred to me, which I think is a, a very a great point of novelty, as I'm sure many of you have heard what is known as the uh, historical Megillah Codes, is that I believe that there is a reason why the letters Tuf and Ches are big for 1648-1649, and the letters Tuf Shin Zayin are small for the year 1947. Because the decree of Haman was enlarged, magnified, came out into the open. Haman's power, Haman's decree was magnified in the year Tuf Ches 1648-1649. And Haman's power was dissolved and squelched and almost destroyed completely when those ten Nazis were hung in Tavshin Zion. Hence, those are small letters indicating Haman and Amalek has been miniaturized, made small, beaten to a pulp. The story of the Megillah is not a historical story. It's a living story that we obliterate and destroy the looming decree of Haman annually. Sometimes it comes out into the open, 1648-1649. Sometimes we have heavenly assistance to dissolve the power of Haman. Somebody once commented to me that in his mind, this Purim Code is the most open revelation of the hand of God in the entire Torah. Somebody once commented to me, very, very honestly, very candidly, that to him, the fact that these dates are openly recorded in the Megillah is the most revealed and open demonstration of Hashem's hand in history that He has given to us in the entire Torah. I mean... Isn't God supposed to be hidden? Isn't there supposed to be like a challenge in believing in God? And here you have in this document, I mean, don't go anywhere, but I mean, you take out the the Megillah over here, and the Megillah could have been written a hundred years before the Holocaust, and you have an open date of when ten Nazis are going to be hanged. I mean, come on, God does that. Where else in the whole Chumash do we see such an open manifestation, demonstration of the hand of HaKadosh Baruch Hu? It's like Hashem in the Megillah saying, Hello, I'm here, don't you see me? I mean, this is unparalleled in Kol HaToyrakula. So I want to share with you a revolutionary, I know my time is up, but don't go anywhere, please. I want to share with you just a couple minutes. Give me seven minutes really a revolutionary perspective of Megillah Esther. 
there's a very, very mysterious comment of the Medrash. The Medrash says there's something called noivlois. Like, a noivel is a semblance of, a shemetz of, a something, a form of, but not in its full glory. For example, the Medrash says, Shabbos is a novel, a semblance of the world to come. Sleep is a semblance of death, is a 60th of death. Honey is a semblance of the man. And the, the Medrash lists a number of what are called novlos. And the Medrash says, a dream is a semblance of prophecy. And then the Medrash says something astounding. The Torah is a semblance of the wisdom of above. I said, what? The Torah is a semblance of the Chachma Shalmala. It's a Medrash. You can look it up. It's in Bereshis Rabbah, Parshiyat Zayin, Oisei. How could that be? How could the Torah be just a semblance of Chachma Shomala? So then what is Chachma Shomala? What is the wisdom of above? I'm sure many are familiar with the Halacha, that even if someone is involved in learning Torah, one is required to stop learning Torah to hear the Megillah. The Gemara says in Masech the Megillah, Mevatlin Talmud Torah, we stop learning Torah, Uba'in L'shmaya Mikra Megillah, and we come to hear the reading of the Megillah. Why do we do that? Why do we stop? Isn't learning the greatest thing in the universe? Isn't learning the divine wisdom? Isn't learning the greatest mitzvah? Why in fact do we stop learning Torah to come to hear the reading of the Megillah? And what does it mean the Torah is a semblance of the wisdom of above? So what is the wisdom of above? There's an amazing sefer. The name of the sefer is Tor Berekes, written by one of the students of the Arizal, one of the Gureho Arizal. And he reveals and brings down to this world just an electrifying idea. He says there is Torah. Torah is the divine wisdom that God has allowed the Jewish people, to access and tap into, which is some type of filtered unit of the wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but it is not the essential wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. There is something above and beyond Torah. The Torah is a filtered element of Chachma Shalmala. So what is Chachma Shomala? That is the actual wisdom of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Is there anything we have in this world that is not, that is unfiltered? That is actually an element of the raw Chachma Shomala itself? And the Torah Baraka says, yeah, we have one thing. You know what that is? Megillas Esther. Megillas Esther, if we can say, if it were, is an element of that which is even above what we consider Tyra. And that's the reason why we are Mavatel. We stop learning Tyra and we come to hear Megillas Esther. There is some element of Chachma Shomala. In other words, if we can use the expression, the raw wisdom of God unfiltered, is there any taste of it? Is there any semblance of it? Yes, there is. The Megillas Esther is a segment of the highest realm of wisdom. In fact, the Arizal himself echoes a similar idea. The Arizal says that even though on our great days and our great holidays and on Shabbos and Yom Tif, God illuminates this world with great light. The light of Purim, the illumination of Purim, that Rizal says, He ha'ara asher me'olam lo'niyasa kamayu, is a light, is an illumination that there never was in our history such a bright illumination. Well, if the Yom Tif of Purim was brought to the world with the greatest of light, 
then certainly contained in the document of Purim will be an element of Chachma and an element of divine revelation that in a way is clearer and surpasses even the revelation of the Torah itself. And therefore you can look in Megillus Esther and the hand of God can be perceived and one can gain a clarity that in a way one cannot see in the Torah itself. Let me conclude by just reading the words of the Holy Chassam Sofer. The Chassam Sofer writes, She'or Kadosh HaKolo B'Megillah, the holy light that is contained in the Megillah, who Mamish Yoiser Gadol, is actually much greater, V'Nichbar and more honorable, than in the Torah itself. Now, obviously this has to be studied and analyzed and understood. But I think what, what this should um, ennoble us to be able to look at the Megillah and to recognize that there are going to be things that we see in this Megillah that are not going to be seen in any other chilek of the Torah. Here it is, we have historical events, prophecies that are not just alluded to, but precise dates are given. And this is all an element and uh, an illumination, the likes of which we don't experience through any other Chelek and Torah and through any other day of the year. So as we're approaching this great day of Purim, our neshamos, our souls begin to bask in this very warm light. And as we get closer and closer, our neshamos, may HaKadosh Baruch Hu, ignite our neshamos, that when the great day of Purim comes, may our souls be aflame with love for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for seeing His divine providence in the world, for seeing His love for Klal Yisrael, and may that love express itself in the ultimate salvation with the building of the Beis HaMikdash, the Biyaskal Tzedek, and Herav Yaminu Amin. Thank you so much. Amen, amen. Thank you so much. Call to. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.